General Hayden. Thank you, sir. <coughs> Chairman Graham, Chairman Goss, distinguished members of the Intelligence Committees, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to address you today. And first of all, on behalf of the men and women of the National Security Agency, I want to extend our profound sympathies to the families of the victims and to the survivors of these terrible attacks. We know our responsibilities for American freedom and security at NSA. Our workforce takes the events of September 11th very personally. By the very nature of our work in SIGINT, our people deeply internalize their mission. This is truly personal for them. Shortly after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, our Director for Signals Intelligence, Maureen Beginsky, visited and calmed an emotionally shattered counterterrorism office. That office is located near the top floor of one of our high-rise buildings. Now, for obvious reasons, we had tried to move as many folks as possible into our adjacent lower buildings, but we really couldn't afford to move the counterterrorism shop. When I visited, later, visited them later that afternoon, not only were they hard at work, they were defiantly tacking up blackout curtains on their windows to mask their location. They remain equally hard at work today. Americans should be proud of these dedicated men and women who serve in the front lines of the war against terrorism. This inquiry is very important to us. It's played an important role for NSA and for the country in determining why Al-Qaeda was able to attack on that day with little warning and how we can better detect and defeat these kinds of operations in the future. Since April, we've hosted your staff in our office spaces at our headquarters. We've shared data with them and in response to their request have made available nearly 3,000 documents, 15,000 pages of material and we have arranged about 200 face-to-face -face meetings. We've assigned some of our best people to work full-time with your staff. And we've done this because, like you, we're committed to finding the full story of what led up to September 11th and to eliminating the systemic problems that hamper our ability to aggressively collect against terrorists. Now, my goal today is to provide you and the American people with as much insight as possible into the three questions Ms. Hill raised earlier. First, what did NSA know prior to September 11th? Second, what have we learned in retrospect? And third, what have we done in response? Now, I'll be as candid as prudence and the law <coughs> allow me in this open session. But if at times I seem indirect or incomplete, I hope that you and the public we'll understand that whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome another episode of the Darkened Hour and I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. This episode will be the complete detailed briefing on the signals intelligence operation involving Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda prior to the events of September 11, 2001, and how the NSA was the lead and primary agency in regards to collecting metadata and signals intelligence on the most wanted man in the world and how much information they collected, which is enormous. During the very early 1990s, the National Imagery Office, which coordinates all U.S. satellite activity, begins satellite surveillance of Osama bin Laden's training bases in Sudan, 
and Afghanistan. Also, Bin Laden's voice print, a computerized record of his voice, is made from tapes of his speeches that were distributed in Saudi Arabia around this time and during the Gulf War. The NSA is able to use the voice print to scan satellite and cell phone calls for a match. As a result, on numerous occasions, the NSA and the CIA are able to monitor Osama bin Laden's phone calls, even if he is not using his usual satellite phone. It has not been revealed when U.S. intelligence begins monitoring bin Laden exactly, though the Central Intelligence Agency was tailing him in the Sudan by the end of 1991. But in late 1995, the FBI is given 40 thick files on bin Laden from the CIA and NSA, mostly communications intercepts. The sheer amount of material suggests the surveillance had been going on for several years. Dan Coleman, who is an FBI agent working with the CIA's bin Laden unit, will begin examining these files and finds that many of them are transcripts from wiretap phones tied to bin Laden's businesses in Khartoum, Sudan, where bin Laden lived between 1991 to 1996. CIA Director George Tenet would later comment, quote, the then obscure name Osama bin Laden kept cropping up in the intelligence traffic. The CIA spotted bin Laden's tracks in the early 1990s in connection with funding other terrorist movements. They didn't know exactly what this Saudi exile living in Sudan was up to, but they knew it was no good, end quote. The London Times will later report that in the Sudan, bin Laden used an $80,000 satellite phone and Al-Qaeda members used radios to avoid being bugged. Bin Laden is mistaken in his belief that satellite phones cannot be monitored. Later on, a satellite phone that he bought in 1996 will be monitored as well. On September 11, 1993, an NSA linguist runs afoul of his superiors after he and other linguists submit a report concluding that Islamist terrorists planning attacks on America. The unnamed analyst, whose name is redacted, insists on remaining anonymous and is nicknamed Jay by press reports. He is fluent in an unusual number of languages. His and his colleagues' study of Arabic language messages and the flow of money to terrorist organizations from Saudi Arabia lead them to believe that Saudi extremists are plotting an attack. The analysts will recall that in January of 2006, quote, you could see this was the pure rhetoric of Osama bin Laden and his group, the exact same group, and we had an early indication. All of us in the group had this view of a burgeoning threat, and suddenly we were all trotted off to the Office of Security. Then came the call to report for a battery of psychological tests, end quote. The analyst will issue further warnings of potential terrorist strikes, this time involving hijackers, passenger planes, and U.S. buildings, in May of 2001. In 2006, other current and former NSA officials will claim that the NSA routinely uses unfavorable psychological evaluations to retaliate against whistleblowers and those employees who come into contact with superiors. Mohammed Jamal Khalifa, who is bin Laden's brother-in-law, is monitored while living in the Philippines. The former head of Philippine military intelligence chief will later say that Khalifa was monitored starting during the late 1980s. The surveillance intensifies when investigator Rodolfo Mendoza begins an investigation into forest terrorist connections in the Philippines in 1994. He will later say that the report is based on hundreds of wiretaps and countless man hours of surveillance. In 1994 and up to 1995, his unit tracked Khalifa with tight investigation and surveillance. Mendoza believed that Khalifa was running a front to fund the training of fighters 
for the Abu Sayyaf group and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, two groups who have connections with bin Laden and al-Qaeda. He submits a secret report about this on December 15, 1994. Phone taps from Khalifa's offices will, lead, will lead to Consojaya, a front company financing the Bajinka plot, which was a multi-phase plot involving commercial airliners outfitted with bombs and all exploding at the same time over the Pacific Ocean, which would kill thousands. Later on, during an interrogation of one of the Pajinka plotters, Abdul Hakim Murad, they found a secret plot to involve the hijacking of 10 planes and crashing them all across the United States. By December of 1994, Tariq Jawad Rana, another prominent Bajinka plotter, is also being monitored, as are other Bajinka plotters, such as Ramzi Youssef. The Bajinka plot will be foiled days before it is to be implemented, apparently after police deliberately set a fire in Ramzi Youssef's apartment to provide an excuse to look around. Although this theory is not backed by major news sources, the prominent theory is that while they were making chemicals in the sink, a large chemical reaction led to thick acrid black smoke to escape through the windows and doors, leading Yusuf and Murad, who were mixing the chemicals, to vacate the premises in a hurry. Murad would later be captured. His capture would later be interrogated under Rodolfo Mendoza. Mendoza would later say this. Uh, an airplane being uh, crashed into the World Trade uh, Center immediately caused a flashback to information I obtained in 1995. And I, and I told that they have done it. So I was really Terry-eyed, to be honest, and uh, I don't know what to say. And I, I uh, woke up my wife and told him that, see, I know that uh, they will be doing the, this, but I don't know when. As you discovered them in the mid 1990s, and I have to, and I have to visualize, analyze deeply the debriefing informations provided by Murad. But when we discuss his pilot training and other training of some Arab nationals in the U.S., I have reasons to believe that that plan during that time is already in effect and is existing. They are in the states of preparation. The states of preparation that he was talking about was the second phase of the operation known as the Pajinka plot. Just two months later in 1995, Khalid al-Fawaz, a contact with al-Qaeda, moved to London and becomes bin Laden's de facto press secretary there. Al-Fawaz, who was a Saudi, had fought with bin Laden in Afghanistan and lived with him in the Sudan. He headed the al-Qaeda cell in Kenya for about a year until early 1994 when he was arrested there. He went to London shortly after bribing his way out of a Kenyan custody. He opened the London office of the Advice and Reformation Committee, also known as ARC, a bin Laden front company. He also allegedly opens an, an account at Barclays Bank. Now, US officials believe he used this account to channel funds to Al-Qaeda operatives around the world. Al-Fawaz will be heavily monitored by Western intelligence agencies for most of this time. For instance, the NSA will record bin Laden phoning him over 200 times between the years 1996 to 1998. Bin Laden also frequently calls Al-Fawaz's work phone and Ibrahim Idaris, as well as Adel Abdelabadi, who both worked for Al-Fawaz at the London ARC office. He occasionally works directly with some of the Al-Qaeda cells during this time. Another instance would be a letter found in Wadi al-Hajj's computer 
Al-Hajj, being an accountant for Bin Laden in the Sudan, whose computer in late 1997 was uncovered during a raid by the FBI and will repeatedly mention Al-Fawaz by his real first name. One part of the letter would say that Al-Fawaz had asked Wadi al-Hajj also to write periodically about the entire situation of the Al-Qaeda Nairobi cell and the whole group here in East Africa. The Nairobi cell was formed under Mahmoud, Mahmoud Salim, Wadi al-Hajj, Ali Muhammad, and Abu Obeda al-Banshiri together with members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, a radical fundamentalist sect led by Dr. Alman al-Zwahiri, and members of the al-Masada training camp who later would become al-Qaeda. Al-Fawaz would issue bin Laden's fatwas in 1996 and 1998, and also arranges media interviews with him. But Al-Fawaz, along with Idris and Abdel Bari, will not be arrested until shortly after the 1998 Africa embassy bombings. Nearly 10 years after their arrests, the three of them still remain in a British prison without being tried while fighting extradition to the United States. Al-Fawaz would have an even greater impact in regards to bin Laden and his use of satellite phones, which I will mention in just a bit. However, the NSA remained quite busy. And by 1994, if not earlier, the NSA is collecting electronic intercepts of conversations between Saudi Arabian royal family members. In fact, journalist Seymour Hirsch will later write, quote, according to an official with knowledge of their contents, the intercepts show that the Saudi government, working through Prince Salman bin Abdulaziz, contributed millions to charities that, in turn, relayed the money to fundamentalists who were, who were sympathizing with them. We knew that Salman was supporting all of the causes, the official told me, end quote. By July 1996 or soon after, U.S. intelligence had more than enough raw intelligence to conclude that Osama bin Laden was receiving money from prominent Saudis. Prince Salman has long been the governor of Riyadh province, and at this time, he is considered to be about fourth in line to be the king of Saudi Arabia. His son, Prince Ahmed bin Salman, will later be accused of having connections with al-Qaeda leader Abu Zubaydah. It appears this surveillance of Saudi royals will come to an end in early June of 2001. In October of 1995, the FBI is given the CIA's files on bin Laden, and they discover that the CIA has been conducting a vigorous investigation on Wadi al-Hajj, who is bin Laden's personal secretary and who is also a U.S. citizen. The FBI had already started investigating al-Hajj in 1991, and in 1993, they found out he had brought weapons for one of the 1993 World Trade Center bombers. Thanks to the CIA files, the FBI learns that in early 1992, El-Hajj moved to Sudan and worked there as bin Laden's personal secretary. Then in 1994, he moved to Nairobi, Kenya, and officially started running a bogus charity there called Help Africa People. In fact, El-Hajj is running an Al-Qaeda cell that will later carry out the 1998 East Africa embassy bombings. He stays in close contact with top Al-Qaeda leaders. Apparently, El-Hajj is also under U.S. surveillance in Kenya, or at least people he is calling are under surveillance that the NSA knows about. For instance, a phone call between Wadi El-Hajj in Kenya and Ali Muhammad, who is alleged to be an FBI, CIA, and bin Laden triple agent, who's in California, is recorded in late 1994. And there are many calls recorded between Al-Hajj, bin Laden, and Ali Muhammad between the Sudan during this year. 
In fact, FBI agent Dan Coleman will analyze all this information about Al-Hajj and eventually supervise a raid on his Kenya house in 1997. I think it would be naive to think that the U.S. intelligence services were working together and sharing all its information by this time. You would think that everybody is on the same page. However, during the course of this podcast, you can see that they are not. And as time goes on, it becomes worse. But during the months later, and during the initial weeks of 1996, the I-49 unit, which is a squad of FBI agents and Justice Department prosecutors that began focusing on bin Laden in 1996, become upset that the NSA is not sharing its monitoring of bin Laden's satellite phone with other agencies, which began as early as 1991 or 92. The squad develops a plan to build their own antennas near Afghanistan to capture the satellite signal themselves. As a result, the NSA gives up transcripts from 114 phone calls to prevent the antennas from being built, but refuses to give up any more. Presumably, this must have happened at some point before bin Laden stopped regularly using his satellite phone around August of 1998. Also, presumably, some of these transcripts will then be used in the embassy bombings trial that takes place in early 2001. Because details from bin Laden satellite phone calls were frequently used as evidence, and some prosecutors in the trial were members of the I-49 unit. The phone calls and phone numbers would become public. Now, the extent of the NSA wiretaps in Saudi Arabia, the Sudan, and Afghanistan were quite expansive. For example, in 1999, a retired CIA official would later claim that two days after the Kobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia in 1996, bin Laden is heard congratulated by colleagues about the bombing. Both Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri the head of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Al-Qaeda's number two, and Ashura Hadi, head of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, both monitored by the NSA, are heard congratulating bin Laden in these calls. This helps confirm that bin Laden was being monitored while using his first satellite phone in the early 1990s. It will be widely reported that he was monitored after he started using his second satellite phone in the latter half of 1996. Bin Laden does not exactly publicly take credit for the bombing, but later in the year, he will say, quote, When I got the news about these blasts, I was very happy. This was a noble act. This was a great honor. But unfortunately... I did not conduct these explosions personally, end quote. During this period, bin Laden uses a satellite phone to direct al-Qaeda's op operations. This second phone, which was a compact M satellite phone, about the size of a laptop computer back then, was purchased by that individual who I named before, Ziad Khalil, who used a credit card of a British man named Saad Al-Fagi and charged $7,500 for it. After purchasing this phone, Ziad Khalil sent it to Khalid Al-Fawaz, Al-Qaeda's unofficial press secretary in London that I mentioned before. Al-Fawaz then shipped it to bin Laden in Afghanistan. It appears that U.S. intelligence actually tracks the purchase as it occurs. In fact, it was the FBI who is investigating Ziad Khalil, independent outside of bin Laden. In fact, the FBI told the NSA that they could monitor this phone, which they said they could, since it was unencrypted. And because it was an older model-like satellite phone, the phone was being hacked by the NSA. And over 400 phone calls were monitored by bin Laden 
calls that were made to Yemen, Sudan, United States, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq. Bin Laden's phone is also believed to be used by other top al-Qaeda leaders as well, including Dr. Ahmed al-Zahiri and the military, al-Qaeda military chief, Mohammed Atef. Al-Fawaz also buys other satellite phones for other top al-Qaeda leaders around the same time. Though the calls made on the phones are encrypted, the, a the NSA is able to intercept and decrypt them. The Los Angeles Times will report that the monitoring of these phones produced tens of thousands of pages of transcripts over just two years. Bin Laden's satellite phone replaces an older model he used in the Sudan that apparently was also monitored by the NSA. And billing records for his new phone are eventually released to the media in early 2002. In fact, Newsweek will note, quote, a country country analysis of the bills provided U.S. authorities with a virtual roadmap to important al-Qaeda cells around the world, end quote. The use of this phone stops two months after the 1998 East Africa bombings in August. However, it appears bin Laden and other al-Qaeda leaders continue to use other satellite phones occasionally after this time. Shortly after 9-11, Author James Bamford, an expert authority on the agency, says, quote, about a year ago, the NSA lost all track of him. He may still use satellite phones occasionally to talk about something mundane, but he discovered that the transmitters can be used for honing, end quote. According to a different account, bin Laden will attempt to use a different phone communication method but U.S. intelligence will soon discover that operation and continue monitoring all the calls afterwards. How important was the NSA? Later in 2004, Michael Scheuer, head of the CIA's bin Laden unit from 1996 to 1999, will later write about the NSA surveillance of bin Laden's satellite phone. That bin Laden began using the phone about a month earlier. And according to Scheuer, a CIA officer working overseas with the NSA tells the CIA that bin Laden unit, that the NSA is monitoring bin Laden's satellite phone. However, the NSA refused to share information gained from the phone and threatens legal action against the officer who revealed its existence to the CIA. This would lead to a desultory interagency discussion without resolution. Scheuer, who at the time, would go before Barbara McNamara, the NSA's legal secretary, and begin a huge argument about sharing information about an al-Qaeda communications hub in Yemen, in which the NSA, which I'll mention in a bit, is also monitoring. The NSA is then forced to devise its own ability to exploit the monitoring of bin Laden's phone and secures about half of the available material. Apparently, Shura says half because the CIA is only able to listen to one side of the conversations, while the NSA knows the rest of the material, it apparently continues to refuse to share it with either the CIA, the FBI, or even Richard Clark, who is the counterterrorism czar under both the Clinton and Bush administrations. Shura will not explain why the NSA is unwilling to share this very valuable material. But had it been shared in time and in the years prior to September 11, 2001, could the 9-11 attacks have been prevented? I would hear the following phrase, which I think one person in particular probably had regret ever saying more publicly, that 9-11 was a gift NSA. <laughs> a gift. It was really an interesting bifurcation, a very secret organization, knowing they had, that we were part of a systemic failure called 9-11. I will also tell you 9-11 could have been prevented. One of the things that's not well publicly known is that part of my whistleblowing involved being called as a material witness in the short months after 
for two 9-11 congressional investigations in which I gave highly classified information, operational intelligence, information that NSA had never shared, or information it did not know it had that was never shared, that if it had been shared and properly acted upon, probably would have stopped 9-11 alone, separate from any other intelligence agency or department. By the way, that was Thomas Drake, the former senior executive of the NSA, and probably one of the most important whistleblowers of my lifetime. Sometime after he is appointed the CIA director, but before 9-11, George Tenet negotiates a series of agreements with telecommunications and financial institutions to get access to certain telephone, internet, and financial records related to black intelligence operations. The arrangements are made personally by the company's CEOs and tenants who plays the Patriot card to get the information. The arrangement involves the CIA's National Resources Division, which has at least a dozen offices in the United States. The division's main aim is to recruit people in the United States to spy abroad. However, in this case, the division makes arrangements so that other intelligence agencies, such as the NSA, can access the information and records the CEOs agreed to provide. There is a history of cooperation between the CIA's National Resources Division and the NSA. For example, Monty Overcar, a CIA officer assigned to the division's San Diego office in the early 1990s, said that he worked with the NSA there, obtaining information about foreign telecommunication programs and passing it on to the Technology Management Office, a joint venture between the two agencies. One U.S. official will later say that the arrangements only give the CIA access to the company's passive data banks. However, reporter Bob Woodward will say that the program raises serious civil liberties questions and also demonstrated that the laws had not kept pace with the technology. There will be an interagency argument about the program shortly after the attacks of September 11, 2001. But I digress. Let's return. In December of 1997, U.S. intelligence monitoring the Al-Qaeda cell in Kenya traced phone calls to Al-Qaeda operatives in Hamburg, Germany, where some of the 9-11 hijackers are living. Around 1997 in August, Sadiq Walid Alawad, also known as Abu Qajari, calls Kenya and is traced by U.S. intelligence to where he lives in Hamburg. Sometime over the next year or so, it is discovered that Awad has engaged in business dealings with a Syrian national, Marmoon Darkanzali, another Al-Qaeda operative. Awad used a Hamburg address for some of his business dealings that was also used by Darkanzali and Wadi al-Hajj. Back in 1994, Awad, Darkanzali, and Wadi al-Hajj worked together to buy a ship for Osama bin Laden. Apparently, U.S. intelligence puts this together by 1998 as one of Wadi al-Hajj's notebooks was seized in a late 1997 raid by Dan Coleman, which details the transactions. Investigators later believed that Marmoon Darkanzali is part of the Hamburg al-Qaeda cell with 9-11 hijackers, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, Ziad Jara, and Ramzi bin al-Sheib. Less is known about Awad and whoever he may have associated with. But in a public trial in early 2001, Wadi al-Hajj identified him as an Iraqi al-Qaeda operative with German and Israeli passports. An al-Qaeda operative with an Israeli passport connected to the Hamburg cell would seem to be highly unusual and significant but there has been almost no mention of him in the media after 9-11, and it is unknown if he has ever been arrested at all. Nevertheless, months later, Osama bin Laden holds a meeting with other top al-Qaeda leaders in Afghanistan during this month of August to prepare for a new wave of attacks. Now, CIA analysts are able to learn 
some about of this meeting through their Bin Laden issue station, codenamed Alex Station, which is an interagency virtual station involving members of the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, and the FBI. There were reams of intelligence documenting Bin Laden before the Africa embassy bombings. And later, another official will say, quote, we've had the book on this guy for a long time, end quote. But it is not known which attacks may have been discussed at this meeting or how much U.S. intelligence knew about what was said there at this time. The NSA is monitoring phone calls between bin Laden in Afghanistan and Khalid al-Fawaz in London, yet no action is taken after al-Fawaz is given advance notice of the African embassy bombings. Al-Fawaz, together with Ibrahim Idris and Adil Abdelbari, who are operating as de facto international media office analysts for bin Laden in London, who in the NSA have been listening to for two years, as bin Laden called them over 200 times. On July 29, 1998, Khalid al Fawaz is called from Afghanistan and told that more satellite minutes are needed because many calls are expected in the next few days. Al Fawaz calls a contact in the United States and Rush orders 400 more minutes for bin Laden's phone. A flurry of calls on Bin Laden's phone ensures, though what is said has not been publicly revealed by the NSA. Before 9-11, Bin Laden's phone calls were regularly translated and analyzed in less than an hour or so. So the NSA cannot say that they had so much information that they didn't analyze it properly. It has not been explained why the surge of phone calls before the embassy bombings did not result in any new attack warnings. In fact, in the months prior to the attacks, there had been intelligence warnings from the FBI and CIA regarding an imminent attack on the embassies themselves, but no security measures were taken. Now, many calls that were made from Bin Laden's second satellite phone were made to an Al-Qaeda communications hub located in the capital of Yemen, Sana'a. According to MSNBC, two of the calls for bin Laden's phone are made days before the bombings. And the NSA is intercepting calls from bin Laden's satellite phone at this time. And his phone is used to make dozens of calls exactly to the Yemen communications hub from 1996 to 1998, but it is unclear what is done with the intercepts as the NSA is unwilling to share information with other U.S. intelligence agencies or the White House. The communications hub is run by a veteran, Mujahideen, who is known to Osama bin Laden through the Soviet-Afghan war in 1979, Ahmed al-Hadda who is also an associate of one of the embassy bombers, Mohammed al-Ohali. Ohali stays at the hub in the months before the bombing and even obtains a fake passport in Yemen. The NSA intercepts in the Al-Qaeda hub in Yemen is extensive, and Al-Qaeda operatives use the communications hub in Sana'a, Yemen to put everything together before the bombing of the USS Cole. The communication hub run by Ahmed al Hada, who believes, U.S. officials believe, will later describe as a prominent Al-Qaeda member who has been involved with the coal bombing. The hub is also monitored by the CIA from 1996, at least. And information gleaned from it is used to thwart a number of plots allegedly. The U.S. monitors the house through bugs planted inside and through spy satellites to monitor people leaving and entering it. However, the NSA, through their taps of Bin Laden's satellite phone, began tapping that phone, listening to all calls incoming and outgoing. However, the CIA 
only had a bug inside the house and also and can only hear outgoing phone calls. That means they can only listen to the person who is on the phone calling to a member on the opposite side of that phone. The hub was also used before the 1998 embassy bombings and will be used to communicate with the 9-11 hijackers way before 9-11. When the FBI arrived in Yemen to investigate the bombing, it will later find out that telephone records show that suspects in the USS Cole bombing had been in touch with suspects from the 1998 embassy bombings in Kenya. Calls between the hub and an al-Qaeda cell in Ireland that seems to have a connection to the coal bombing are also intercepted during part of this period, but not shared by the NSA. It is unclear why the information does not allow the NSA to thwart the plot, but I think we can all speculate as to why, even though this could also lead to very outrageous conspiracy theories. Now, despite the scope of the monitoring, NSA Director Michael Hayden will later say that there were no intercepts the NSA could have exploited to stop the bombing, but how would we know if they didn't share? He would later say, quote, when the cold disaster took place, I had brought to my desk in, in this office, every stitch of NSA reporting on the, that could in any way be related to this. And I went through it report by report, and I sent a letter out to our entire workforce, which was essentially, you performed well, keep up the good work, end quote but it probably wasn't good work. Good work in the way that none of the information the NSA shared, most of it anyway, wasn't shared with anybody outside the NSA. The question is why? According to Michael Scheuer, information collected by the NSA can be shared with other US intelligence agencies in two ways. One, verbatim transcripts and summaries. Scheuer will claim that verbatim transcripts are more useful, especially since summaries are rarely done in a timely manner. From the establishment of the Bin Laden unit in February of 96, Scheuer asked the NSA for transcripts of al-Qaeda surveillance, but in every instance, his unit was only given summaries. Two, other CI, senior CIA officers who have the same problem would later say that in August of 98, after the U.S. Embassy bombings, senior CIA managers would ask the bin Laden unit what the unit needed most to improve their capabilities against al-Qaeda. And Scheuer will later claim that he again raised what he would call a dire need for verbatim reports derived from electronic collection. Higher officials order the NSA to comply, and they do, but only for less than 12 requests. Then the system returns to the way it was with NSA only sharing summaries. Apparently the problem will not be fixed before the attacks of September 11, 2001. And as the NSA continues to monitor an Al-Qaeda communications of Yemen, they would later find out that they heard the names of Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazm. They also learned that Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi are longtime friends. In early 1999, the NSA intercepts communications mentioning the full name of Nawaf al-Hazmi. They find out he has a brother, Salim al-Hazmi. However, this information is not disseminated to the intelligence community as it apparently does not meet NSA reporting thresholds. In fact, the 9-11 Congressional Inquiry will say, quote, those thresholds vary depending on the judgment of the NSA analyst who is reviewing the intercept and the subject, location, and content of the intercept, end quote. Another intelligence organization intercepts the same or similar calls and reports this to the NSA. The inquiry comments, quote, NSA's practice was to review such reports and disseminate those responsive to U.S. intelligence requirements. For an undetermined reason, NSA did not disseminate the report, end quote. 
the NSA continued to intercept such calls and finds even more information a few months later. Near the end of 1999, there will be additional intercepts that gave Khalid Al-Fanar's full name and the first names of Nawab Mahasmi and Salim Mahasmi. But while the NSA will provide some information about these new intercepts to the CIA and other agencies, they will not go back to the earlier intercepts to figure out Nawab al-Hazmi's full name and close connection to Khalid al-Midar for some odd reason. In the winter of that same year of 99, a covert four-man CIA and NSA team arrives in the part of Afghanistan controlled by the Northern Alliance. They set up a listening post within range of Al-Qaeda's tactical radios. The Northern Alliance is shown how to run it. And then the team leaves. In March of 2000, CIA agent Gary Bernstein would lead a small CIA team into Northern Alliance territory. This would later lead to Operation Jawbreaker. While there, they improved the existing listening post and set up a new one even closer to Taliban-controlled territory. The U.S. makes little use of the intelligence gained from these intercepts leading Northern Alliance leader Ahmed Shah Massoud to conclude that the United States is not serious about getting Osama bin Laden. On December 29, 1999, NSA listens in on a phone call revealing that Khalid al-Midar, Nawab al-Hazmi, and Salim al-Hazmi are to attend an important Al-Qaeda summit in Malaysia in January of 2000. Khalid al-Midar's full name is mentioned, as well as the first names of Nawab and Salim al-Hazmi. On this day, the NSA finally shares this information with members of Alex Station and the FBI's bin Laden unit. Although Khalid al-Midar's full name was mentioned in one call, the NSA, however, only passes on his first name. Also, the NSA has already learned from monitoring the Yemen hub that Nawab's last name is Al-Hazmi and that he has longtime friends with Al-Midar. However, they either don't look up this in their records or don't pass it on to other agencies. An NSA analyst would later make a comment that is shared between U.S. intelligence agencies, quote, Salim maybe Nawab's younger brother, end quote. However, this turns out to be correct. The NSD, actually the CIA, sends an officer from its counterterrorism center to the NSA to review raw transcripts of intercepted communications between the terrorists. However, the officer is only there for a brief period and is subsequently withdrawn and not replaced, damaging the CIA's ability to exploit the information gleaned from the transcripts. The CIA only previously re received summaries of intercepted calls and not the transcript themselves and have been arguing for years, as I have mentioned. After the single officer leaves the NSA, which intercepts calls between the US-based hijackers and the now communications hub in Yemen around this time, the reason the CIA gives for not replacing him is Resource constraints. Ridiculous. In 2005, the CIA's Office of Inspector General will regard this failure as so serious that it will recommend an accountability board be convened to review the performance of the counterterrorism center managers responsible and will suggest that officers should have been detailed to the NSA on a consistent full-time basis. However, Nobody was held responsible. The CIA and NSA are obtaining information about people in the United States from phone companies to support their black operations on American civilians even at this time. On January 10th of 2000, the CIA sends the NSA some information about Khalid al-Midar, including information about al-Qaeda's Malaysia summit, which al-Midar attended, as well as the name of a person who helped in Kuala Lumpur, where the summit was held. The NSA is also told 
that Al-Midar's primary purpose for coming to Malaysia was to meet with other people. The CIA knows Al-Midar has a U.S. visa, but it is unclear whether the NSA is informed of this. At this time, the NSA has some information about Al-Midar, whose calls it has been intercepting for at least a year, that has not been disseminated. In particular, the NSA seems to have overheard something in early 1999 that should have been disseminated, but was not. This new information from the CIA does not cause the NSA to re-examine its material of Khalid al-Midar or disseminate any important information to other U.S. agencies. However, al-Midar is subsequently put on an NSA watch list, and the NSA intercepts calls between his home in Yemen and him in the United States, but fails to alert the FBI to his presence in the United States. Which makes you question, why would the NSA were told that from the FBI? It is an FBI matter, of course, considering they're the lead agency in the United States, judicially. Between January of 2000 and the summer of 2001, the NSA intercepts approximately 14 calls between the hijackers in the United States and an al-Qaeda communications hub in Yemen. He is also Khalid al-Midar's father-in-law, since Khalid al-Midar had married Ahmed al-Hadar's daughter, Hoda al-Hadar. The first calls are made by Khalid al-Midar and are intercepted during the spring and summer of 2000. More calls are made by Nawaf al-Hazmi after the bombing of the USS Cole in October of 2000. Finally, the final call from the U.S. is intercepted just a few weeks before the attacks of September 11, 2001. The NSA intercepted the hijackers' calls outside the U.S. before this and continued to do so in 2000 after al-Midar returned to Yemen to visit. Some of the calls may only contain non-operational information, as they are between al-Midar and his wife. However, the calls are also used to relay messages to the other 9-11 hijackers. According to the 9-11 Congressional Inquiry, the NSA disseminates some of this information to the FBI, CIA, and other agencies, but not all of it, as it apparently did not meet their reporting thresholds. It is unclear why it did not meet their thresholds. And as we near January 2001, the CIA's bin Laden unit reduced the FBI's access to NSA material tracking al-Qaeda members. Why they did this is beyond me. However, authors Joe and Susan Trento will later comment that by doing this and withholding the hijackers' identities from the FBI, the CIA effectively ended any chance in the months leading up to 9-11 of discovering Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi were actually al-Qaeda agents destined to play major roles in the 9-11 attacks. The NSA knew a lot more than that, but they were given a pass. In a series of articles for UPI, journalist Richard Sale would reveal many details about the NSA's electronic surveillance of al-Qaeda. Quote, the United States has scored notable successes in an information war against the organization of terrorist suspect Osama bin Laden. U.S. hackers have gone into foreign bank accounts and deleted or transferred money and jammed or blocked the group's cell or satellite phones. End quote. It is also mentioned that Osama bin Laden is surrounded by U.S. listening posts. The articles discusses the extent to which the NSA's Echelon satellite network is monitoring Al-Qaeda and even seems to make an oblique reference to monitoring the Al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen that enabled the NSA to discover valuable information on Nawaf al-Hadmi and Khalid al-Midar. The articles also reveal that since 1995, Osama bin Laden tried to protect his communications with a full suite of tools, but the codes were broken.
and expert ads that you don't use your highest level of secure communications all the time. It's too burdensome and exposes it to other types of exploitation. The article also implies that Echelon is used in illegal ways. An anonymous former senior U.S. intelligence official will say, quote, this isn't about legality. This is about to protect American lives, end quote. While bin Laden's communications were certainly thoroughly monitored before 9-11, no evidence has come to light since 9-11 that the United States was hacking into bank accounts or jamming signals. Or at least that's what they want the public to believe. Just weeks before September 11, 2001, the FBI I-49 unit is upset that the NSA is not sharing its monitoring of the phone calls of another important member, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. The squad builds their own antenna in Madagascar specifically to intercept Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's calls. It has not been revealed when this antenna was built or what was learned from this surveillance. However, there has been media reports that the NSA monitored some phone calls between Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Mohammed Atta in the summer of 2001. This information was never shared outside the agency. Further, U.S. intelligence monitored a call between KSM and Mohammed Atta a day before September 11, 2001. That was the final go-ahead for the attacks. So presumably, the FBI I-49 squad should have known about these calls as well if this antenna did what it was designed to do. Between the years 1991 or 1992 to 2001, the NSA had collected an enormous amount of data and metadata and signals intelligence that could have easily helped to thwart the 1998 East Africa bombings the bombing of the USS Cole, and of course, the attacks of September 11, 2001. The question is, why wasn't this information shared? And why didn't the 9-11 Congressional Investigation or the Joint House Inquiry thoroughly question Director Hayden when they had the chance? I was told from somebody in the NSA that because they allowed the CIA to fall on the sword for the NSA. Why would George Tenet do this? And what information had the NSA heard over those 10 years? That is the question we should ask. Ms. Hill referred to this in her September 20th testimony when she said, and I'm quoting now, unbeknownst to the CIA, another arm of the intelligence community, NSA, had information associating Nawaf al-Hazmi with the bin Laden network. NSA did not immediately disseminate that information, although it was in NSA's databases. End of quotation. This failure to share, as it's been called, was not some culturally based failure. As you know, one of our value-added activities is sorting through vast quantities of data and sharing that which is relevant in a usable format with appropriate consumers. In this case, we did not disseminate information we received in early 1999 that was unacceptable in its content, except that it associated the name of Nawaf al-Hazmi with al-Qaeda. This is not to say that we didn't know of him and report on him or of other individuals. We did. In early 2000, by the time of the meetings in Kuala Lumpur, we had the Al-Hazmi brothers, Nawaf and Salim, as well as Khalid al-Mintar, in our sights. We knew of their association with Al-Qaeda, and we shared this information with the community. I've looked at this closely. If we would have handled all of the above perfectly, the new fact that we could have contributed at the time of Kuala Lumpur was that Nawaf's surname, and perhaps that of Salim, who appeared to be Nawaf's brother, that their surname was Al-Hazmi. Now, there's one other area in our pre-September 11th performance that's attracted a great deal of public attention. In the hours just prior to the attacks, NSA did obtain two pieces of information 
suggesting that individuals with terrorist connections believe something significant would happen on September 11th. Now, this information didn't specifically indicate an attack would take place on that day, and it didn't contain any details on the time, place, or nature of what might happen. It also contained no suggestion of airplanes being used as weapons. Because of the nature of the processes involved, we were unable to report the information until September 12th. To put this into some perspective, throughout the summer of 2001, NSA had more than 30 warnings that something was imminent. We dutifully reported these, yet none of these subsequently correlated with actual terrorist attacks. The concept of imminent to our adversaries is relative. It can mean soon or simply sometime in the future.